We left off with the four foundations of mindfulness. Uh, I hope being a little bit more clear and how that is uh, very much part of our everyday practice. If you recall, the body, feelings, mind states, and then the the Dharma, the lawfulness that underlies uh, those three realms. And in a typical kind of training, what you're learning to do, for one way or another, is to bring the body into focus, to bring feelings into focus, to bring mind states into focus, and then to begin to see that all of these realms are impermanent, that they're often liable or prone to unsatisfactoriness or suffering, dukkha, and they're empty of self, empty of a separate self, an intrinsic self, a solid, enduring self. And so when you sit uh, in the the second mode of attention when uh, you're just open, choiceless awareness or free attention. From moment to moment, probably you've seen it many, many times now, that sometimes the body is very prominent. It's not that you have to figure out what to pay attention to. Life takes care of that. It's in your face. Or it's just relaxed and things are just coming by, sounds and sights, thoughts bodily conditions, and you just have a general sense of them coming and going, and then sometimes something is very, very strong, and the practice would be to focus in on that. The breath can be of help as you do that. To begin with, and that varies from person to person, uh, the real seeing of impermanence, etc., those three qualities that are so interrelated, uh, doesn't become fruitful until there's some degree of samadhi, until the mind has settled down a bit. And there's some degree of familiarity with these realms so that you're not totally thrown with the variety of bodily conditions that we experience and the different feelings that we go through and the different mind states that visit us. And so even if you never heard of impermanence, let's say we just kept doing what we were doing, uh, you certainly have begun to uh, become more intimate, more familiar uh, with these mind states because you've been forced to spend time with them. And then, of course, uh, it's not to spend time with them in any old way. That doesn't do us too much good but in a way that's mindful, so that we're alert, awake, attentive, and experiencing these realms as we bring them into focus. Now that uh, degree of samadhi and familiarity, of course, grows. It keeps growing throughout your life. With it comes a kind of settling down, a sense of things being a little bit more workable. Maybe you already have some of that. Some of you who are, this is your very first retreat for many of you. Perhaps you're getting the beginnings of some confidence that it's difficult, but it's workable. 
and it's workable because it's observable. That is, there's, uh, in some magical way, at least potentially, whatever is happening to us can be seen, can be known. There's something in us that can do that. So that's unique, I think, to us humans, is that as we live out our life, we can also know it in the moment that we're living our life out. Um, I'd like to just uh, elaborate a little bit more on uh, the emptiness the, or the anatta, just to make sure that um, that idea is a little bit clearer, and then uh, go into some uh, concrete examples. Sometimes people get confused between self-image and self-knowledge, or I even prefer the term self-knowing. Self-image are just the many images that come up in the mind throughout the day about who I am. And sometimes people assume that knowing the image means that you have self-knowledge, or that the self-knowledge is, or the image is self-knowledge. Uh, self-knowledge is much bigger than those images, but it includes them. So certainly, coming to know ourselves is to be, is, includes seeing how the mind creates pictures of who we are, representations. That's what they are. We objectify ourselves. We turn ourselves into a this or a that. Uh, and then we believe in them. We then imbue those representations in the mind with a reality that's very, very convincing, and then, that, of course, that has tremendous consequences. So the images, different images, both flattering and not so flattering, come to stand for us, just the way your graduation picture, you know, with nice pink cheeks and the teeth are perfectly white. Just one split second in a life is frozen by a professional photographer, let's say. And then it's mounted on the piano and put in the wallets, and it comes to stand for you. But all it is is a, a, a moment of time, frozen and touched up at that. Yeah. So these images are just that. That's all they are. They're images. But when the mind isn't clear, we're taken in by them, and then uh, we suffer the consequences of it. Self-knowledge or self-knowing is seeing all this, is being able to tell the difference between an image that's manufactured, fabricated, fashioned, that comes up, operates, and then disappears, doesn't last, and something much deeper, much deeper, that isn't a representation at all. It's not an object. It's not something you manufacture. It's something that you are. And it's prior to all these images, and it's always there. The reason I like self-knowing instead of self-knowledge is that uh, many people, uh, we all carry with us our own culture, and knowledge is uh, highly treasured by us. And it, of course, it, it is very important. But when it comes to the self, sometimes it can, especially in our work, uh, really slow things down dramatically and even misdirect us. It's not accumulating a book full of insights. Are any of you doing that? 
It's okay. I mean, you, we didn't tell you not to. We told you not to write, read, and all that. I don't think we specifically said, do not make a book of your insights. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, but there are always some people who do that and then come home and then have a book of insights about themselves. Um, and I'm not saying that's worthless, but I also, uh, it contributes to uh, the fiction that we are this, that, or the other. And the fact that it's knowledge is, it's um, accumulative. Whereas self-knowing, the knowing that's, uh, that's of so much value in Dharma, is something that's of use in the moment and then that's the end of it. It's not that you have created a, a new archives of, of you, but now these are insightful yous, ones that you've garnered at a spiritual training place. It's a new scrapbook. It isn't that. It's the, words, the value is in the moment, in the seeing deeply into what's happening, and that's the self-knowing, and that's what has, uh, that sees something, and that's what frees us. So that sometimes self-knowledge, for the reasons just mentioned, uh, can be not the most exact term for it, but speaking just loosely is fine. Okay, so the wisdom aspect of uh, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness is to begin to see that uh, all three foundations, as we look carefully, we see that their nature is to change. They have a changing nature. And as we see the changing nature, we see how much that's a slightly different way of saying uh, that life is uncertain and often there's, uh, uh, it's, Suffering is not exactly the right for dukkha. Um, what's the word I'm thinking of? It's not suffering. Uh, unsatisfactory. Because we get good things, but they don't last. Nice things happen to us, but they don't last. And we know it at some level. When they arrive to us, we know that they're not forever. Now, if we could learn to be with it just as it is, and derive the pleasure or the benefit from it and then be able to let go would be no problem. We do know how to do that with certain things and the practice can help us do it with ourselves. Take flowers. As many of you know, flowers are used on the, I don't know if we have them, yeah. Uh, it's a very important symbol in Buddhist monasteries and meditation centers. Uh, it's a perfect uh, way to convey uh, the teaching of impermanence because uh, flowers right in front of your eyes wilt. You see them, they're beautiful, and we love them. They really enhance life, and they don't last. Now, let's say you have some beautiful flowers on your altar, and then after a few days you see they're starting to go, and then finally they're starting to wither. And in many monasteries they will leave the flowers out a little bit longer. They don't just snatch them away when they start to uh, wilt, because the wilting is part of the learning part of it to see that it's beautiful and it also wilts. Okay. We can respond to that in a variety of ways. One way is we get burned. We fall in love with these flowers and then they go and die on us. And say, okay, I'm never going to put flowers on that altar again. I'm never going to buy flowers. I'm never going to even look at a flower. They just go and die on you. What good is that? 
that's pretty extreme. We can get plastic flowers, <laughs> nice and safe, but boring. It's not, you know, it's plastic. There's another option, and I think we all learn it with flowers because we've done it so many times. We know they're going to wilt. We enjoy them while they're blooming, while they're fresh and alive. And when they die, we don't, we don't have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> we discard them, and then we replace them. So we're able to enjoy the beauty of flowers without making a big problem out of it. But we're not as good uh, with doing that non-attachment. See, non-attachment doesn't mean that you don't participate fully in life. Just because something is impermanent doesn't mean it's worthless. Quite the contrary. Some of the most precious things in life are precious because they're not permanent, like our love of the people in our lives, like life itself. So when we say impermanent, sometimes what gets overemphasized is a kind of a bleak view, everything's impermanent, nothing lasts. Um, that's skewed. In fact, um, let's say in, in, in training, let's say you're practicing with the impermanence of the body. That's the first foundation of mindfulness. And there are a number of ways of deepening that in, since the time of the Buddha. One, uh, you observe your own body and you see uh, change from moment to moment. Surely everyone here must know that now. Comfortable becomes uncomfortable, becomes unbearable, becomes comfortable again. Become, so that the body is quite alive. And you begin to get a different sense of the body. If you start to see the impermanence of the body up close in that microscopic way, one thing that starts to happen is the notion of a self becomes harder to sustain. The notion that the body is a solid entity, that it's you, becomes harder to sustain because you see it's not a fixed thing. It's just a field of energy in constant change. Classically, other meditations are brought in to deepen uh, this meditation as well as to benefit from it. And the main one, of course, are contemplating aging, sickness, and death. Uh, I hesitate to say this because I think the new people are just getting used to the fact that uh, if somebody's walking slowly and not making eye contact, it doesn't mean that they're ready for a mental hospital <laughs> and that they're depressed. They may be, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. <laughs> they could also be blissed out in their eyes and they're not looking at you and they're walking very, very slowly like that. For some people, that was uh, a, a difficult adjustment. came up in many interviews. Okay. Uh, in Dharma circles... Uh, it's not unusual, in fact, it's encouraged, at least traditionally, to contemplate your own death. Uh, why would you want to do that? That sounds questionable from a certain point of view. Um, this is, again, another way of becoming um, familiar with, comfortable with, the law of change, of impermanence. Uh, the, the law of change includes, of course, aging and sickness and, and finally dying. And the point in the Buddha's teaching is not morbidity at all, but rather to come to see that aging and dying is a natural thing. And it can help us learn to age gracefully and to die gracefully with dignity and total acceptance 
that we're part of a life process. We haven't been singled out for some special torture that everything that lives is like this, and we're part of that. It's a, so that there's, there, there's quite a dramatic change that's po- possible in our attitude, and it can be learned. Other reasons for contemplating impermanence of the body, that is to say death, finally, is what we're talking about, of course, is that it brings up fear. And uh, if you're ready for it, uh, the bringing up fear is the beginnings of uh, bringing an end to your fear, or at least taking a lot of the power out of it. So these contemplations, of course, will bring up some fear. Cemetery contemplations, where yogis would actually go to um, charnel grounds and witness decomposing corpses. Or you can do it in your mind. There are ways of visualizing, and uh, it's not quite the same, but it's, it can be pretty powerful, very, very powerful, in fact. And um, it can be done in conjunction. I spent one month with Ajahn Suwat, who's a, a Thai forest master. And I would do um, two-thirds of the time or so, I was doing a little more the kinds of meditation we're doing here. And then the rest of the time, I was contemplating death, my own death. But there's another reason. That is, in, it's a balanced meditation. Uh, the bringing up of fear is valuable because it gives you a chance to come to know fear and to use all the meditative tools that you're developing to examine fear so that you don't have to be afraid of it. But also, uh, it enables you to uh, experience how precious life is. See, we're not living as if we really know that. Sometimes we uh, get a scare or someone dies in our life or we feel frightened about thinking we might die or have a a serious disease, and suddenly everything takes on a different uh, significance. So this meditation is designed to do that so you don't have to wait for a crisis, but you begin to enliven yourself by coming to terms with an obvious truism, that everyone that is born must age, must get sick, and must die, all of us. And yet we fight that tooth and nail, and so, many, so much distortion comes out of it. So the kinds of meditation you're doing, uh, seeing the body up close, bringing it into focus, beginning to see change in it, beginning to see feelings change, beginning to see, as you look into the mind directly, beginning to see that no self-image or notion about yourself or emotion stays forever, uh, is starting to enable you to be more real. Or is your, uh, your perception is now more and more becoming aligned with the way things actually are rather than with the way in which we think they are. Which, according to this teaching, and it's for you to test, not to believe in, is a hallucination. The hallucination is that we're going to be here forever, that we're just having a ball every minute of the time, <laughs> and there's this permanent solid self, that's the one that's going to live forever and it's having a great time. Uh, what I'd like to do in the remaining time, in part because this came up in a fair number of interviews uh, with Michael and myself in the group and individually, is talk a little bit about fear uh, and try to help you see how uh, this practice might be very helpful for you in terms of working with fear. So for the moment, let's, um, 
uh, a little bit of background. First off, it's not one of our favorite subjects, is it, fear? Uh, I mean, we're not exactly uh, having a, a library collection of all the great treatises on fear. Maybe some of you do, but maybe it's because you're a professional and you have to deal with other people's fear, and so you have to read what this psychoanalyst and this meditator said about fear. But for most of us, we have a pretty uncomfortable relationship with fear, to put it mildly. We're frightened of fear. We're terrified. We hate it. Okay. So step number one in any realistic dealing with fear is to come t to see it, just to know that we're afraid. That is not a small step. There's a lot of denial, a lot of ways in which we have, uh, we have many uh, rather elaborate networks of escape to keep us from being in touch with fear. Now, when I say fear, perhaps what you're thinking is something dramatic, like, or semi-dramatic, like Michael's rats. Or when I was there I, in Thailand, I didn't actually see too many rats, but there were about five snakes slithered by as I was sitting. And I think I'd prefer the rats myself, but uh, we were, we were <laughs> I was much more afraid of snakes than rats. <laughs> In other words, my, my fear is worse than Michael's. <laughs> I'm the most open and humble person in the, you know, the complete nobody. Okay. Uh, See how that ego comes in? There's no. Okay. Uh, but I really don't mean that, uh, because what I'm trying to say is that fear is, uh, it could say, almost omnipresent. Uh, much of it is below the level of awareness. Uh, but there's a lot of small fear that's following us through the day if we'll only take a look. And I would suggest you do take a look. And it's a very good way to begin getting free of fear. Uh, small fears, very small ones, like uh, you have to make a certain phone call. And suddenly it's, it's not, you're not terrified, but there's a bit of fear that you have to make this call to someone you're not sure about how you're going to speak to them or what their response will be. or fear of being rejected, or you know, endless fears that we have, but really small ones, fear of an interview with two sweetie pies like Michael and myself. People, are, when they walk, sometimes I don't know who I am when people walk in, you know. It's as if, you know, Cyclops or, you know. Okay. But there's a lot of fear that's just small fears, you could call them. And it's a very good idea to get to know them and to practice with them. It, and it, it comes up all the time in daily life, and some of it, I'm sure, has come up here. Uh, typically, assuming we're beginning to recognize fear, our first response would be one of wanting to get rid of it, and we'll do anything to get rid of it. And so we want to uh, engage it in some joust where we want to conquer it, destroy it, annihilate it, or get away from it, or anything, but we don't want it. So we know it's there, but our mode of dealing with it is to eliminate it. Sometimes, uh, let's say if you come to meditation centers, 
and retreat centers or read books on meditation. Uh, I actually mean this more for meditation centers, people who've been practicing for a while, because I think it's a kind of myth that somehow if you sit long enough, your fears will go away. Somehow, just sit for 10 years, and then, you know, you, at the end of the 10 years, well, my 10 years are up, fearless. <laughs> or do your mantra for 10 years, or your koans for 10 years, or prostrations, two trillion prostrations. <laughs> and then when you finish the two trillionth, you will have no fear at all. I have not seen that to be true. I just haven't. It helps. All of it helps. Now, uh, or follow the breath for two trillion years. Years, I said. I don't think all of that will help, but all of them are a little bit off the mark. As much as they help, none of them are the direct attention to fear. And that's the part that's hardest for us to do. It's just, and that's part of what a retreat is. That's part of what intensive practice is. That's part of what the value of a sangha is. Alone, it's very, very difficult to face some of these things until we uh, begin to hit the hang of it. We begin to see that it is workable. Fear is alive. It's an energy. It's what it is. And it's... Uh, strong bodily sensations and thoughts that often disable us, disabling thoughts. And as you begin to see that's what it is, it's, an, it's something palpable and concrete, but in order to see that you have to really approach it. Now, to begin with, we have tremendous resistance to doing that. We're afraid of fear. And one of the uh, useful ways of easing into it uh, it's not so much, we're not here to sort of rub your face in fear or even to push you prematurely into your fear because finally that's your decision. But uh, on the way, one very, very helpful uh, means of coming to terms with fear, and it's a very ancient one, is you begin to notice the networks of escape from fear. So it's not necessarily uh, the case that you have to plunge into the fear directly but rather you begin to see how frightened you are of fear, how much resistance you have towards it, what you will do to avoid it, how you will delay making that little phone call, or whatever it is we do. It comes up all day. When you get home, take a look, you'll see. We'll go into do this and go to a coffee shop and suddenly decide to buy a paper or eat this. Uh, why? Why at that moment? If you look carefully, you'll see we're trying to delay it or put it off a bit or um, cushion it. So you can begin by seeing how much you don't want to look directly at fear. And it's very high-class practice. It's not in any way inferior. As you begin to really take stock of yourself, it's a wonderful practice. Um, in as part of doing that, you start to see how much energy is used in escaping from fear. And this, I can tell you in my own practice, was a turning point. Um, it was a, a very simple realization, um, I think consistent with the Buddha's teaching, and it's more than about fear, but it very much included fear. This was some years ago when I concluded without any doubt that there was no escape from suffering. 
there was none, because I tried all of them, or not all, how could I be, how do I know, a lot of them. I'm not saying there isn't an end to it, but there's no escape from it, and in fear in particular. Uh, I don't think we have time. If, if we do, I'll go into a particular one. Uh, even the sitting, it's vivid, it'll always be with me because it was a turning point for me. But the realization that there was no escape was very, very helpful because what I saw was the tremendous amount of energy that was being used to evade, avoid, deny, uh, postpone, delay, cope with, put up with, uh, all that energy, what if that energy, instead of being dissipated in all these escape routes, what if it was just simply turned towards the fear? What power? Do you have a sense of, uh, for yourself, of your own, how much energy is dispersed by all the games we play? And what if you didn't do that and instead that energy were aggregated, made coherent, unified, and whatever it takes to get us to do it, is to now look directly at fear. You would have tremendous power. Attention would be on fire at that point. And in my own case, what helped me a lot was, was realizing the futility of all this postponement, etc. But I think it's necessary to put in years, I did, and see the futility, and see that at the end of it, uh, that included meditation, different kinds of meditation. Certainly, before meditation, I was doing it big time. It's harder to get away with if you come to places like this, but it can be done. And the ego is brilliant. It'll figure out a way. Okay. At least mine did. Uh, and so, little by little, we start to... Uh, this journey is a little bit fictitious because it's each one of you will do it in a different way. But the day comes where uh, you value and understand uh, how very important it is to uh, come to terms with fear. That means step number one, can we directly attend to it? Can we do that? And you need motivation. So some of the mo motivation comes from seeing the price we pay for fear. Enormous. Because we do so many things to compensate for the fear, to hide from it. That's what I meant, so much of it is below the surface that in the current terminology, unless this is dated already, we're bent out of shape. Is it already dated? Yeah. It's gone, right? Yeah, passe, generational gap, yeah. <laughs> Hi, Pop. <laughs> I've been getting notes from some of you. Hi, Pop. Thank, thank you. <laughs> So now uh, we're starting to turn towards fear a bit more. Now, remember, what I'm saying is not something way out there. It has to do with you on the cushion. I mean, I'm kind of simplifying it in terms of sort of stages almost. But it can come up. And the day will come when you will turn towards the fear. And what is it that we're turning towards? It seems to me there are only two things that are going on, uh, these disabling thoughts which are uh, imaginings about what's going to happen to you, most of which are not true. Now and then, they're true. I mean, now and then, fear has intelligence tucked inside of it. 
It really does. I mean, so you have to listen to a fear. Fear is here for a reason. It's a, it serves human beings. But often we've gone so far beyond that survival use of fear that uh, the fear doesn't have a whole lot or any intelligence in it. It's, uh, it comes out of our past, our past conditioning. So there would be these thoughts that are in some way defining what's happening to us in some awful way, what's going to happen to us. And it's disabling and very strong body sensations that Michael was getting at, uh, practically speaking, right there in the body, very good. But both are going on, and both eventually are part of what needs to be known. Because one of the things you can begin to see, and this is a kind of insight, uh, to begin with, fear has so much power because uh, we've given it to the fear. That is, uh, we've imputed a certain solidity to it. First of all, it seems that when it comes upon us, as, this is the big ones, as if it's going to last forever, as if it does have self, it will never end. And we just hate it. We just can't stand it. And we have to begin to see that, as mentioned, the resistance to it. Um, when that happens, In your own practice, uh, of course, the body is, for most of us, a much more realistic point of entree. It's more manageable. But you also may begin to see that the soil out of which the fear comes uh, is thinking. You begin to see that there are particular thoughts which say something about the future, typically, that is uh, devastating. This will happen to me. It may be an old fear that you now feel is going to, something that did happen to you and that's going to happen again. Or it's a, a totally new one that the mind is making up. The mind has poetic license. It can do whatever it wants to. So it's shameless. Have you noticed that yet? It can say whatever it pleases. It doesn't care. Okay. And so it can concoct a reality that's quite terrifying. But if you can begin to see, oh, that's a thought and begin to see that it's just a thought. That's hard to do, of course, to begin with. And the practice unfolds not in some neat way, you know, uh, as it's sounding, the way I'm speaking, but in bits and pieces where you have uh, 10 seconds of real attention, and then you can't stand it, and you try to stamp it out, and then you retreat, and then you go get a cup of tea because you don't want to deal with it at all. Then you come back to your cushion. You don't even go to get the tea. You realize what you're up to. No, I can't do that. It's a cop-out. You go back to your cushion. You look at So it, until it's not sort of a, a fluid, steady, uh, you know, a picture postcard meditator uninterruptedly gazing into and through the fear, you know, uh, we, it come, it's a, we're human. And it comes, in a way, in installments of a few steps forward and then some defeats. And then, but little by little, you definitely can learn how to see that fear is alive. It's an energy. It's something that's in this world. And it happens. And it's palpable. And it's right there. And it can be observed. And, well, why all this talk about impermanence? and not self, all that. One of the main reasons is that if we take impermanence, as you come to see the law of impermanence at work over and over and over again, it makes it uh, so much easier to let go of attachments. The attachments start 
uh, falling away. They become, um, how to put this? They start fading away. For example, let's say a fear comes up. And if you're able to really be with it as best as you can, let's say it, it lasts 12 minutes and you're right with it. And then it, it passes and you see that it's now gone. And then there's relief. Oh, it's impermanent. And then maybe you do it again sometime. And maybe another time. Uh, little by little, it's a, you're going to have a very different relationship to fear if you can see that it's impermanent. Because what you're seeing is that it is something that arises and passes away. That's true. If we don't see that, while it's there, it's as if it's going to be forever, and it has immense power over us. Also, we concoct a sense of self. Who is this happening to? It's happening to me. I'm the one who's terrified. In fact, of course, that's finally the root of all the fear, is this sense of me that is constantly on the line. Why? You know, if you listen to your mind, uh, what's it mostly doing? Isn't it mostly talking about itself <laughs> all day long, even at night in the dreams? We're totally obsessed with ourselves. <laughs> but we're, we've been trained, so we don't, you know, some people do speak aloud, you know. I remember once passing someone in Harvard Yard in Cambridge, someone from the center, and she was talking to herself. And, you know, I saw and I got, I saw it, you know, then, then she saw me see her. So as we passed, then she said, oh, I guess you saw me talking to myself. So I, I was trying to make her feel better, but I was also telling the truth. I said, yes, I was just doing the same thing. It's just that you were more honest about it. <laughs> you know, hers was overt and was out there. Uh, and <laughs> takes a while sometimes. <laughs> um, Why are we so preoccupied? Because we're not really confident. Because the self is constantly coming in and going out. It's incredibly vulnerable. It's not a self. It's sort of this process of selfing. It's humiliated so easily. It's so fragile. It spends so much time building itself up, maintaining itself, telling itself how wonderful it is. And then one wrong, wrong look, and then the whole thing falls apart. And then it tells itself how awful it is. And then, then we have to say, no, no, it's just an image. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it arises and passes away and lacks self. But seriously, can you see how when you begin to see that, it takes the power out of it? You start to see, oh, coming, going, coming, going. You start to see it really isn't substantial. The illusion is that it is. And as long as you've, you've imbued it with that substantiality, then you're victimized by it. And as you start to see the law of impermanence at work, coming and going, coming and going, uh, your relationship to it must change. The letting go starts to happen quite naturally and easily. The attachment starts to fade. Viraga is a very important concept in our teaching. It starts to fade out. It loses its potency. And then genuine letting go happens, not throwing away or pushing away. Okay. So over time... Uh, in this journey that we're taking, the day comes where you really can finally have communion with fear, become intimate with fear. Uh, my own sense, 
personally from a very big fear that I uh, worked with some years ago and from what I've uh, learned from my teachers and books. Uh, the, uh, there's a way of, uh, of entering into relationship with fear, to observing it. It's the same for grieving. It's the same for loneliness. It's really the same for all of it. It's non-dualistic. You've heard that term, some of you. See, to begin with, when we observe fear, there's still fear of observing the fear. And so even we've, we've moved quite a ways. Our practice is unfolding. We have strong samadhi, etc. But there's a separation. The sense of the observer is separate. We've divided the whole experience into an observer, namely me. So it's, the ego is very much there. It's uh, disguised as a yogi. It's dressed up as a yogi. <laughs> but it's still very much there. I'm the one who's observing the fear. Okay. And so there is that split. It's still helpful. And, and I think all of us must begin that way. And it, and it take, can take a long time, years. But the day comes where that self-consciousness falls away. And then there's intimate uh, seeing into the nature of fear. And we begin to see that it's strong bodily sensations and very also uh, quite powerful thoughts, period. That's what it is. And uh, it starts to lose its potency. We start to see that it arises and passes away. We start to see is that it is insubstantial, the tendency to identify with it and then create this monster that we then have to defend ourselves against and do all kinds of things to compensate for. Uh, that starts to fall apart. And it falls apart through clear seeing and understanding. In our practice, understanding is what is so precious. It's not intellectual understanding. Uh, the kind of understanding we're talking about, uh, often it's a sudden, this is Huang Po, a great Chinese master, a sudden, wordless understanding. It's a clear seeing. It's a kind of intelligence that Michael was talking about last night. It's just not in, uh, intellectual intelligence. That seeing is very smart. And what it, see, what it does see is the true nature of fear. And it isn't what we have been construing it as and then having to relate to it and uh, fend, fend it off. So I hope this is becoming clearer. As you begin to learn how to work with fear, so many things improve in your life and in practice, of course, because fear uh, is compromising our ability to pay attention uh, once fear even weakens a bit, you'll find you have much more energy. Uh, you'll find that the kind of mindfulness that you have available, not just with fear, but anything, it starts to become uh, much It's more available to you. It's more normal and natural. You also learn the lesson uh, of the futility of all these escapes. That uh, the escapes, if they worked, they don't work. If they did work, none of us would be here. We've all tr tried it and are trying it. Aren't we desperately trying to escape? Uh, I, th I see these retreats and places like IMS, these elaborate structures, stage sets, with incredible forms that have been invented and used for thousands of years to get us human beings, drag us in, what is the cliche? Kicking and screaming. And to say, please take a look at yourself. That's all this is about. 
and we'll do anything, you know, all kinds of methods and techniques and pictures with teachers and flowers, you know, uh, whatever it takes. Because finally, finally, this is my own feeling, Ajahn Chah, who came here, a very great Thai master, said something, and it's taken me quite a few years. I intuitively agreed with him then. It was about almost 20 years ago when he taught here. But my life has showed me that it's, uh, it gets truer and truer. He said, you can try all the techniques in the world and all the different traditions. They're great. They'll help you. But if you don't get to know yourself, uh, it won't really change things. There's no excuse for that. There's no, no exception to that. You can't get away with that one. So if the techniques and the forms, including this one, if they help you come to see yourself more clearly so you can let go of unnecessary suffering, then they're wonderful. But if they don't, then uh, they're limited. When I poked a little fun about methods like prostrations, uh, mantras, even following the breath and so forth, um, it's not that I don't have respect for those methods, because I've done them. I've done lots of prostrations and so, and so forth. But I remember one case in, uh, in Korea. A monk became hysterically frightened. I mean, he was just really terrified. Uh, I don't know what it was. And they have an approach that, uh, there that is very, very helpful. He was put on a, a, a prostration retreat, bowing, 100, some large number. I hope I'm doing it justice. It could be like... 10,000 or more a day for a week. And at the end of the week, he was definitely much better. I mean, dramatically much better. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. There was no room for thinking. But then, you know, we still had months to spend together, and what you could see is that it was very, very helpful, but it didn't get at the root of the problem. So, I, I don't know, I just, my own bias is there's no uh, shortcut. Uh, uh, there's no way around self-knowledge, self-knowing, self-understanding. And that's what we're doing here. So, if you think there's some sense to what's been said and it's plausible, or you've even seen the results in your own life, then we're all here for a good reason. And even though it's difficult and sometimes uh, you have to give up so much, like you can't have peanuts on the line. <laughs> Some retreats you get peanuts and then suddenly they take peanuts off at the tea time. There are all kinds of suffering in this world. Okay, okay can we have a few moments of silence, please? May we all continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. May such clear, direct seeing free us from all forms of limitation.
what I didn't say is simply that you find out that fear may be there. Maybe it always will come and go, but you aren't fear. That isn't the totality of who you are. And when you see that clearly, it changes things dramatically. Without clear seeing, it's as if we are the fear. I, I, don't, I mean it in terms of it being tyrannized by it. Okay, maybe you got it anyway. But. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.